Welcome to TP Talks, PwC's Global Transfer Pricing Podcast Series. My name is Dana Hart, and we welcome you to our next episode, where we will address the transfer pricing implications of the new Section 174 regulations. Joining today's podcast, I have Marco Fiacadori. Marco is a transfer pricing principal in PwC's U.S. National Tax Services Practice. I also have Dennis Tingey. Dennis is a tax services partner with PwC U.S. And last but not least, I have Aaron March. Aaron is a transfer pricing principal with PwC U.S. Aaron is also our moderator for today. So, Aaron, I'm going to hand it over to you. Great. Thanks, Dana. And thanks for having uh, Marco, Dennis, and uh, me here today. Um, Obviously, Section 174 continues to be a hot topic. It kind of snuck up, I think, on a lot of people in the beginning of 2022. And we are very much in a wait and see moment now. Um, Obviously, there's been attempts to have legislation passed that would amend the new Section 174 in Congress. Uh, You know, previously, that was under the Build Back Better bill. Um, Obviously, that has not yet passed, and there are maybe some other pieces of legislation coming up later in the calendar year 2022 where this topic could be potentially addressed. But the one big uncertainty remains timing. Exactly when would legislation be passed that would uh, reverse the new Section 174, which, of course, um, approaches mandatory capitalization? So given the uncertainty, um, we're starting to see a lot of companies needing to get their arms around this new requirement, what mandatory capitalization of research and uh, experimental costs or R&E expenses mean for them. Today on this podcast, we're going to address some of the TP or transfer pricing related questions and issues that we're seeing pop up as a result of the Section 174. But before getting into that, maybe Dennis, I could pass it on to you. And perhaps you could just start for us to give us a brief overlay on um, the new Section 174 and what it entails specifically for U.S. taxpayers. Thanks, Aaron. And you're right. This has been a very big topic. And maybe just a little bit of background, even before the the legislative changes that came with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. As 174 is generally a provision that historically has allowed expensing of R&D costs, If you look at the legislative history before the new provision was enacted, Congress had decided that they didn't want controversy in this area as to whether a taxpayer could deduct research and experimentation costs, and they wanted to encourage research and experimentation costs. And so the rules before the TCGA were very uh, favorable to taxpayers. Taxpayers could choose to expense anything that was related to software development or anything that was related to research and experimentation. They would have the ability to capitalize if they wanted to. And so lots and lots of flexibility. And then what we have is the issue that everyone's wrestling with today, which is under the TCJA, as part of those provisions and as part of a pay for, a provision was enacted that mandates capitalization for not only research and experimentation costs, which was what 174 specifically referred to historically, but also for any software development costs. And the way that the law works is that capitalization is mandatory for any cost that software or R&E that's incurred after January 1st this year. And that capitalization is then recovered either over a five-year or a 15-year period of time, depending on whether those costs are domestic or foreign. And so what it's left us with is this really big uncertainty as to, uh, you know, how is this provision to be applied? You know, it's effective today. Lots of people thought it would never become effective. And and that's one of the things we're wrestling with. 
we have very limited guidance from the government at all about the new provision. And so we're just kind of sitting here saying, hey, we have a fundamental change from what the law used to be. It's now become effective and is applicable to costs that are being incurred in this tax year. And where does that kind of leave us? And so that's the state of where we're at in the background of what people are wrestling with today. Great, Dennis. Thanks for that additional background. Um, you know, good to just kind of set the stage here as we delve in more deeply on some of the issues uh, when it comes to 174 in general, as well as some of the transfer pricing implications in particular in our company transactions. Dennis, curious, you know, I see a lot of companies, you know, are releasing their Q1 earnings over the past few weeks here. And uh, was curious, what did we see pop up in terms of some of the issues or questions that taxpayers had? when they were working through their first quarter provisions this year, knowing, like you had said, this kind of snuck up on us, perhaps? Yeah, Aaron, I think that's a great question. And, and it's really interesting. Because of the provision scene, we're seeing issues that we thought we had thought a lot about this before, but just issues are popping up everywhere in oftentimes unexpected ways. I think one of the biggest issues that we're seeing is that because the prior law was so taxpayer favorable, Taxpayers really didn't need to decide whether something was a research and experimentation expense or just a normal trade or business expense, that they were both going to be deductible. There wasn't really any need to identify those. Now that you have this mandatory capitalization provision, one of the big issues that's coming up is just what is for sure a research and experimentation expense and what is a software development expense? And, and how many costs need to go in that? Is it just for employees? Is it for rent? Is it for indirect costs that might get pulled into that? Do you have to have a research intent? Is it just writing software code? Is it something more than that? Does it need to be you know, an ownership type-based test? And so just all kinds of issues surrounding how do we actually define what a software development cost is and how do we actually define the scope of what an RE expenditure is. Again, under the old law, that wasn't really necessary because you had this flexibility built into the provision. Software development in particular is something that before the way that the law had worked is the IRS had said, you can treat software development in a very flexible way, just like 174, but there was no direct guidance as to what the distinction between the two was. Now that software development is expressly provided in the code to require capitalization, that's been another area is to try to say, where are we going to look for, for guidance as to what constitutes a software development cost? The other things that we're seeing is just a lot of residual impacts, which is, okay, once you start capitalizing amounts and that can change your taxable income, what effect does that have on all kinds of other provisions? So there's provisions like guilty and beat and, and, and other state tax provisions where the amount of taxable income you generate or the characterization of a cost becomes relevant. And, and we're seeing some overlay in that area. And then on top of that, you have other provisions that have expressly sort of been tied to 174. You have certain sort of allocation provisions that reference 174. You have election provisions like under 59E that would apply to 174 costs that are deductible. You have certain rules in the cost sharing arrangements that you know might have applicability there. Do you even have state tax apportionment issues that can have relevance as to whether the state adopts the new provision or not? And so overall, just lots and lots of issues. There's always been an interaction with 174 and the research credit. And again, the, the list just keeps growing as people start digging into this more and more. And I think you said it well, Aaron. I, I think people have kind of put this on the back burner, thinking that it would never have become effective. And yet here we are. And as people wrestle with that, that list continues to grow. 
Thanks, Dennis. That's definitely quite a list. I think like you had said, sort of those residual effects or those knock-on effects, it's almost a scenario where you don't appreciate um, all of those until you start working through it, understanding what it means to you and then what's the materiality of that. Um, knowing obviously that we're in transfer pricing, a lot of our intercompany transaction are really impacted and closely correlated to other international provisions. And here, Dennis, I'm thinking things like guilty and beat, for example, um, maybe we can probe into those international provisions and some of those knock-on effects we're seeing on 174 a little bit more. Um, again, I think that's maybe something that a lot of taxpayers may not fully appreciate up front, but then start to see that there. So perhaps, Dennis, we could probe into those a bit more. You bet, Aaron. And I think, again, in, in my practice, in our world of methods and accounting periods, we generally are focused through a domestic lens. And Section 174, you know, is in our mind quite often viewed as a domestic issue. What we found is that we've started to pull this apart is how much crossover is in other areas, particularly the international area. So anytime there's a, a characterization issue. So, for example, under BEAT, you think about whether intercompany sort of transactions related to R&D services can have an impact there and which affiliates going to have to capitalize, how that's going to impact their particular taxable income. We're seeing a lot of really interesting issues there that are just hard to get your hands around unless you start modeling out the impact. The other thing is different provisions like 163J and other sort of uh, limitations that are based on taxable income. Well, taxable income is going to change dramatically in terms of projections and modeling, depending upon whether you have to capitalize your software and your R&D cost or not. And, and interestingly, some of those times capitalization can be actually favorable and, and taxpayers may want capitalization depending on their unique sort of international posture and, and the things that are wrestling with, again, whether it's 163J or whatnot, you know, there, there's fitty sort of characterization, you know, benefits and impacts and, and people looking at those kind of things. Uh, again, looking about build back better and what other what other provisions might be revoked in the future or changed in the future. You know, you might want to capture a certain benefit and, and 174 might have an overlay there. Uh, your guilty profile is definitely being impacted depending on whether or not you're going to have to capitalize these in different jurisdictions and whatnot and how that will sort of play out. And then you have definitely, like we talked about, some very specific provisions that specifically reference Section 174. For example, in the 861 regulations, there's very specific allocation and apportionment rules with respect to RE expenditures and how they're characterized. There's also other places of the code where 174 expenses are specifically given a certain treatment like 263 cap A and other provisions. And I think modeling becomes very, very important. Yeah, maybe Dennis pivoting. I know we unpacked a lot there and definitely, like you said, it's, it's not a one size fits all. Um, the one thing that jumped to mind is when you were talking about guilty and how we think about income in other jurisdictions. And when we think about you know common intercompany transactions that we see a lot of taxpayers have, one that kind of comes up to the list, um, thinking about guilty as well as the beat considerations that you were mentioning is contract R&D arrangements. Um, Dennis, I think maybe you had talked slightly earlier on um, about the amortization of costs and maybe just before we delve into the contract R&D, just to level set again, can you tell us how we think about amortization under section 174 dependent on um, the location of where R&D activities are being performed? Yeah, Aaron, one of the things that's relatively clear in the new statute, but but we, we've had a lot of questions on is, how do you distinguish between the 15-year amortization for international sort of R&D costs versus the five-year amortization that's for domestic 
RE cost. And, and it may not be entirely intuitive because a lot of times taxpayers are looking at who the payor is as opposed to where the activity is actually occurring. But the way the statute works is that really it's based on where the R&D costs are being performed and the activities are being performed. So if there's costs being performed you know, outside of the U.S., those costs will generally get a 15-year amortization. If there's costs being performed in the U.S., those will generally get a five-year amortization. It's not necessarily who the payor of those costs is. It's really where the activity is occurring. And, and that can have some really interesting, uh, you know, situations where you have someone who might be in one jurisdiction, but, but is getting a very different amortization because of where the costs are being incurred. So maybe Dennis, building on that and thinking forward on, you know, contract R&D, just curious, what positions have we seen taxpayers taking and adopting on this? For example, a lot of U.S.-based MNCs have foreign entities performing contract R&D. And when we think about locations um, of where activities are being performed and then applying sort of our traditional transfer pricing lens on this, thinking about um, entities that, you know, fund the R&D costs and own the underlying intangibles, maybe what positions have we seen um, companies take when it comes to 174 in the context of contract R&D? Exactly which party should be amortizing these costs? Well, or maybe even the question is, should both parties be amortizing the cost? It seems non-intuitive. And, and there's really, other than what actually is an R&D cost, I think this contract research arrangement and cost sharing arrangements have probably been the biggest issue that taxpayers have been wrestling and, and, and practitioners have been debating under the new statute. And, and I know Marco is going to talk to us a little bit about, you know, specifically some cost share issues. If we just start with the base case of when we're contracting, whether it's with a related party or, or with a third party to do research on our behalf. One of the big questions that are sitting out there right now is whether the idea of a 174 cost is really only applicable to the person who owns or controls or benefits from the end IP from the research, or whether it's really more of an activity-based test, meaning that anybody who engages in research activities whether you're doing it on a contract basis or whether doing it on your own behalf um, would be required to be capitalized. And the current regs are just very, very unclear here. If you view it as an activity-based test, then you have a situation that people are really concerned about, which is you might have double capitalization, meaning that if I paid a related party $100 to perform research services on my behalf, and then that affiliate goes out and pay their employees $90 to do the research with a 10% markup. All of a sudden, you could have a situation where I, as the principal, am going to capitalize $100 of R&E costs because I'm paying someone to do R&E on my behalf and I own the IP. But then the service provider also will have to capitalize that $90. And now you've got $190 of capitalized R&D costs when there's really only 100 cost in the system. And that sort of stacking or double capitalization would be the result if the regs are interpreted as an activity-based test. Um, in alternative, if you did it more as an ownership-based test, then I think it's relatively clear that only the principal who, who owns the IP and is benefiting from the research would capitalize, and the service provider would effectively just deduct those as normal 162 expenses. But this is a very big open question, a lot of debate as to what people think under the current law that, that the answer would be because we to date haven't gotten any real guidance from the government. But this question of activity versus ownership based test is a really, really big question and probably the one that people have been wrestling the most from a provision standpoint. Thanks, Dennis. That's helpful. And, you know, 
it's not only the numbers when we think about that specific impact of that transaction, again, that R&D service recharge, but then again, going back to those knock-on effects, what does that mean in terms of your guilty income, for example, or your beat position for those U.S. taxpayers? So I guess now that we've got the contract R&D arrangements, or at least some of the issues we're seeing popped up there um, covered, Marco, maybe pivoting to you, was curious if you could help us understand the interplay of Section 174 capitalization and the cost-sharing regulations under Section 482. Um, obviously quite a complicated area. Could you maybe walk us through some of the key issues and implications that we see popping up for taxpayers? Sure, Aaron. And I would note first that R&D capitalization is just bringing a number of uncertainties uh, for U.S. companies, for U.S. taxpayers with cost-sharing arrangements uh, whereby they want those cost-sharing arrangements to meet the requirements under 482-7, which is a fairly prescriptive set of rules in our transfer pricing regulations. And those regulations were written, you know, um, at a time where R&D expenses and 174 expenses were in general currently deductible. So they're, they're not really necessarily easy to interpret under the current framework. So, you know, letting aside the 174 identification, assuming there is 174 expenses as in the pool of intangible development costs, there are really two big questions that arise in this context. One is uh, relating to the measurement, and in particular, to specifically to the uh, stock-based compensation amount that is intended to go into the calculation of the intangible development cost in that year. And the other is about the netting or you know, making hold each other um, cost-sharing participants by virtue of the cost-sharing transaction payment. And this payment, the recipient of this payment, um, there are different ways of interpreting the rules in how to account for it and how to treat the receipt uh, amount, uh, in particular from a U.S. recipient in the U.S. return, but also a, you know, potentially for a CFC in the other direction to the extent the cost-sharing participant is a CFC. So why would, you know, it goes beyond the scope of the podcast to go through the complications. I would say uh, sort of the, the, the issue, the core issue is somewhat of ordering and whether 174 really applies before some of the mechanical sort of um, applications of the rest of the 42 rules. Specifically, uh, for the stock-based compensation question is whether what should be shared is just amortization relating to uh, the amount that has been first capitalized versus the um, sharing is the cost that is incurred and the 174 comes later. So in effect, um, maintaining a position that uh, the cost-sharing participants would instead measure the cost first and, and uh, defer sort of the 174 capitalization and therefore also the amortization of the capitalized amount later. Similarly, for the um, cost-sharing transaction payment, um, in questions on interpretation whether the recipient of the cost-sharing transaction payment would be effectively forced to recognize a, you know, a reduction in its own deduction and potentially even an inclusion of income by receiving the cost-sharing transaction payment, or um, the re receipt of the cost-sharing transaction payment reduces uh, the amount to be capitalized to begin with and therefore uh, reduces also the amount of uh, amortization and deductions associated with it. Um, at this point, uh, you know, taxpayers have, you know, developed several arguments in 
favor or against either positions. And, and I would say it's uh, because it's fairly prescriptive. It's, it's something that we see uh, as important in, in both in modeling alternatives and also understanding the uh, potential pitfalls of uh, one or the other arguments, knowing that there may be also fact-specific items, not just the regulations, but uh, the fact pattern and the history of the taxpayers in taking an um, alternative position or position that could limit the ability to um, choose a particular interpretation in this context. So something to navigate and something to consider um, specifically for those taxpayers that have a material amount of uh, 174 in their pool of cost sharing. Thanks, Marco. Definitely a complicated area and a complex area, both when we think about the treatment of those stock-based compensation costs, and then like you had said, um, the interplay between 174 eligible costs and the mechanics of the cost-sharing transactions that we have in cost-sharing arrangements. Um, maybe before we sign off here today, curious, Dennis, uh, Marco, what some of the key takeaways would be for listeners, if maybe we could perhaps just recap on that, given we've definitely covered and unpacked quite a bit here today, and maybe unpacked isn't even fair, um, more touched on a lot that definitely could be unpacked further on the podcast here today. Yeah, Aaron, I, I think from my perspective, and, and Marco mentioned it as well, I think one of the big takeaways is just how uncertain this area is right now, that there's a lot of reasonable ways to look at these provisions, whether it's the cost sharing rules, whether it's the contract research, whether it's the scope of 174 just in general. And and there's good arguments to say that whatever the rules become finalized, if they ever do become finalized, you know, they could go either way. And so I think it leaves taxpayers both with some flexibility to be reasonable in the way that they're looking at these rules, but also with a lot of uncertainty. It's just we just don't know. We don't have any guidance from the IRS, notwithstanding the fact the law has been out there for four years or so. Um, we don't have any help because I think policy-wise, people really do still think the provision will likely be you know, deferred or, or revoked at some point in time. And yet the law is what it is today. And so I, I think the takeaway is, is that th there's just not answers to some of these questions. There's some good, rational, good thinking behind it. We hope that the government will help us here a little bit at some point or that the provision gets revoked or, or pushed down the road. Um, with respect to the legislative environment, I think people were hoping something would have been fixed before now and we're not in that environment. I think given the current political posture um, and, and the elections coming up, that there's just a good chance that nothing legislatively happens you know, here in the near future. And, and that too creates this uncertainty that you're going to have to deal with and try to model and think about these things, notwithstanding the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty and we really have almost no um, legislative or uh, administrative guidance you know, from the government. And, and so through the rest of the year, I just think taxpayers are going to have to wrestle with this, both from a provision standpoint, an internal modeling standpoint, because as of today, this is the law until we get some more definitive guidance or there's a legislative change. I echo your thoughts, Dennis, and I would emphasize that for the taxpayers that have already done some work because of provision to keep these monitoring closely and continue to work with their advisors and auditors sort of to maintain that course of action and their course of, of navigation in, in real time. And for others that perhaps have pushed back, it, it is now time to reconsider whether this is something that needs to be reprioritized given the uh, chances that we're not going to get clear resolution or there will be a turbulent time. And, and, and at one point, uh, possibly 
you know, um, the taxpayers will no longer have the ability to defer this beyond, um, you know, probably the fall. So something that, that needs to be built into the schedule at this point as a contingency for the tax department to, to tackle on or to continue to monitor if this has been already um, discussed. No, definitely a lot to think through and to stay close to. Um, definitely both Dennis and Marco when it comes to legislation, but just more procedural, getting our arms around it and what it means for um, individual companies and the potential ramifications uh, given where we stand now from a legislative perspective. So I know we definitely touched on a lot of points, um, more to unpack for sure on this topic. But with that, just wanted to thank both Dennis and Marco for joining me today. Um, and a big thanks to our listeners as well. We hope that this discussion was insightful and at least gave you at least a flavor of uh, the various topics and considerations there are to think through in the context of Section 174 and the potential impact um, and implications to common intercompany transactions. Uh, of course, stay tuned for future TP Talks podcasts, and we hope to see you back here soon. Thanks for your time. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.